this point, and uh, I, I want to introduce uh, the gentleman who's our guest speaker today. I think it was probably back in 2012 when I initially met Dr. Brassford. I was, I was remembering a phone call way back then. I don't even know how that uh, came about, but I remember meeting him, I think, first on the phone. But we have bumped into each other on and off, uh, seen each other through, throughout the years. Uh, Dr. Brassfield and his wife invited Rachel and I, this is back in 2015, it was, a, it was a, a kind of a difficult season in our life, but he invited us to the little town in Arkansas where he lives, put us up in a hotel, he took us into his home, he took us out to, uh, to dinner several times and fed us and took good care of us, and they just ministered to us, he and his wife Kathy, they, they poured into us, encouraged us, and prayed with us, prayed over us, and uh, will not forget uh, his kindness uh, during, during that season of our lives. But uh, this, this man uh, has done about everything that there is to do in ministry, pastoring. He's uh, been the president of a, a Christian college, and currently he leads what was called Destiny, uh, I think it's Destiny Leaders, I kind of get the name wrong, but Destiny Leaders is a group of pastors, missionaries, church leaders that, that he oversees. There's several hundred that are involved in that. And uh, he oversees that organization of, of pastors, founded that and oversees that, and uh, also founded and oversees Destiny Leadership Institute, which is a, just a, a, a great, I think there's over 100 students uh, annually right now, and it's, it's an online, basically, Bible college or ministry training institute, and they partner with local churches so that they can serve in the church and get their education for ministry all at the same time. Don't even have to leave town, they can stay in their, their local church. So it's a pretty, pretty powerful tool for the kingdom. And uh, Dr. Brassfield's doing some amazing things. We, we had a phenomenal time yesterday. He just, he dropped, I'm, I, I told Rachel, I'm gonna listen to the, the, the teaching that he shared with us yesterday. I'll probably listen to it 20 times because there was so much into it. I'm gonna mine all of that gold in there and uh, it just continue to grow from that probably for, for the next few months. Just rich, rich stuff. So I'm looking forward. I believe today is, is an appointed time. How many of you know what today is? It's Sunday. Very good. Very good. <laughs> but today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday. And Dr. Brassfield's actually written um, a book. It, it'll be available. Maybe he'll tell you a little bit more, but it'll be available in the foyer after the service. He's written a book about Pentecost. So what, what better guy to come and speak to us on Pentecost Sunday? And I'm looking forward to what he has to share with us this morning. Dr. Brassfield, would you please come? Thank you. Make him welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be in the house of the Lord. How many are just crazy in love with Jesus today? I know you are. I can tell. I can tell that exuberant worship. How many, isn't it great to worship the Lord when we come into the presence of God and experience his present. What an incredible honor for us to do that, to be able to, to not just be a spectator in the kingdom, but to be able to move right into the inner circle and to be part of the, of the glorious family of God that's worshiping God. And so you're in a great place today, and we had a fun time yesterday. I always love getting to hang out with Pastor Chad and Rachel, and I don't know anybody that can lead worship any better than Sister Rachel. I love your touch on the keyboard, and your heart is so uh, so precious in worship, and so it was great to be with them and then to meet you, and I see familiar faces who were here, and, uh, and I'm trying to get names and faces and all that worked out, and, and you'll have to be patient with me. Uh, 
as I work on that. But uh, then I see new faces, and I hope to get a chance to say hello to you and uh, be a little better acquainted. You know, uh, the days in which we're living, I believe, are commanding a live and powerful church. I believe that the church, perhaps our greatest opportunity in certainly my lifetime. Now, my dad pastored for 50 years, and my granddad 60 before him. And ministry is, is in our life, and it was in our family long before I was ever on the planet. But I have never seen a time that's more fertile for the luminous glory of God to shine through his church than in this hour in which we're living. Can I get an amen for that? But it's not going to be the ingenuity of men or it's not going to be better techniques or better methods. We always want to be refining and improving what we're doing, getting better. But how many believe that it's going to be the attractional glory of God that's going to radiate into this world to declare the truth of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers? That's what it's going to be. Jesus said it this way. He said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And there's references of that, of the serpent in the wilderness that Moses lifted up when the people had been bitten and were dying. And they simply had to look at the serpent. And when they saw him and looked in faith, there was an immediate and miraculous healing that came into their body. How many believe that's the way Jesus does it in our life as well? And we cast our eyes upon him. And so uh, I'm, I'm just full today of his uh, joy and glad to be here. And uh, I want to be careful with our time. I want to be uh, careful with that. So if you'll take your Bible and open it to the book of Acts. I mean, it is Pentecost Sunday, right? So, uh, I mean, I've got to talk about Pentecost. But maybe as we meander through a few ideas and thoughts, we'll look at it from just a bit of a different perspective. And so I'm going to break that open in a couple of moments and, uh, but I want to read a few passages. Let's begin in chapter number 2 of the book of Acts in verse number 1. It is the Pentecost passage that so many of us are familiar with if we've been around the kingdom for any length of time. And verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, was a bit different than the other feasts that were celebrated. The other feasts were a number of days long. One of them was eight days, and then there's a three-day feast. And this particular feast is a single day. It began about midnight while the priest would prepare to open the gates so that the lambs that were going to be offered could be examined and then the prayer services started about 9 a.m. The book of Ruth was read in the outer court of the temple as people and pilgrims would gather from all over the region, certainly within 13 to 20 miles of Jerusalem and the city. But many would travel from all over the known world. Proselytes and those who had been part of the diaspora would come and they would present themselves in Jerusalem as the Torah commanded them. This particular day opens, and I think that's probably the background of Luke's writing here. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Now let's look down just a few verses. Let me edit the list that Paul, uh, that uh, Luke, I'm sorry, gives us in this passage of who was present. And let's go to the message that Peter begins to preach on the day of Pentecost. And I want to draw a couple of highlights out for you as we get underway this morning. Verse 14, but Peter standing with the eleven raised his voice and said unto them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day. That's prayer time, about 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And I'm saying amen to that. <clears throat> and on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now it's interesting as Peter begins to preach his message, and we're going to edit just a little bit more of it as I have perhaps the longest scripture reading in the history of any message that's ever happened. But uh, it's interesting as Peter begins to break the message open that he focuses essentially on three scenes in one drama. Three scenes in one drama. And that's kind of what I would like to ask you to, to do with me this morning. I want you in the movie theater of your mind to join me and I'm going to highlight three scenes of this one climactic drama that was leading to the birthday of the church. I've been raised in Pentecostal circles all my life, and I, I, I love the power and the move of the Holy Spirit in, in the manifestation of Pentecost. But can I tell you that Pentecost was more than, a, about, than a group of people who spoke in tongues on a particular day? The power of Pentecost is so much greater than just the prayer language or the gift of tongues in the church. Can I get an amen for that? There was something more happening on the day of Pentecost than just that experience. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But there are three scenes that I want to draw your attention to in this process of this drama. So let's edit just a little more as we move forward. Look at verse number 32. As Peter begins to preach. Let, let's wait. Let's go back. 29. And men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, he foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now he gets into the heart of his message. This Jesus God has raised up among whom we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, this which you now see and hear. It's interesting 
that he speaks of. If you look in verse 23, he speaks of this Jesus whom you've crucified. And so there are three passages, three pictures that are displayed for us in living color. Number one is the, re- the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Number two is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And number three is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So if you'll allow me today as we just kind of, everybody look at your neighbor and just smile at him for a minute. Let's just relax a little bit. And as we loosen up, let's talk about these three pieces. First of all, let me ask you, how many want experience with God that works? Something that's not just theoretical, something that's not just uh, an, an experiment, something that's not just an experience of someone else that you knew in the past. But how many want something that's real for you and works for you? When I think about that, I always think about the little boy. I don't know whether you heard the story, but the little boy that all of his friends at school were getting bikes, and he wanted a bike too. And man, he wanted it so bad. And there was a, a red one in particular that he wanted. He'd seen it down at the store, and and uh, he was talking about how in the world am I going to get my parents to get me that bike? And one of his friends said, "Well, you could you could pray about it, and maybe God would give you that bike." And he thought, "Well, my parents are uh, are nominal Christians. They're attending Christians, but they're not really." Uh, I have no confidence in their prayers. So he thought, I know if I'm going to pray the right kind of prayer to get God to give me that red bike, I'll just watch Christian television. So he tuned in that first day, and on this day, he watched the High Church channel. These folks had all their theology nailed down just right. Everything was careful and cogent and, and, and ordered and, and, and all. He listened all day, took copious notes, and At the end of the day, he got down by the side of his bed and he prayed a prayer, something like this. He said, great God, omnipotent one, thou who dost hold all things together by the superintending power of your authority. Hear this, the earnest plea of this thy humble servant as I beseech thee on behalf of my desperate need for a red bike. Beautiful prayer. I mean, so eloquently uh, uh, couched and put together and, and he got up, slept all night. Ran down to the, the living room the next morning thinking it would be like a Chris, Christmas morning experience. No red bike. And he thought, well, I watched the wrong channel. So uh, the next day he watched the Faith Channel. These people were so good with their teaching and so ordered with their precept upon precept. And he took careful notes all day and waited till he got it all just right. And then when it was time to pray as, as he was going to lay down that night, he prayed to prayer something like this. Lord, I thank you that I already have a red bike. I name it and claim it in Jesus' name. I, tell, I proclaim in the name of the Lord that no devil in hell can keep me from getting the full manifestation and the natural of what's already mine in the Spirit. Finished his prayer, got up and slept all night. Next morning, he ran to the living room, no red bike. He thought, well, there's only one other channel to watch. And so he watched that channel all day. It's a very religious channel. I mean, flowing robes and gold and saints and silver and whatnot. <laughs> and so about halfway through the, through the day, he put his notepad down and, and just checked out for the day. But when it came time to go to bed that night, his parents had that same religious background. And over in the corner of the living room, they had a statue of Mother Mary. And they noticed he got her around the, the neck and drug her back to his bedroom. His mother... <laughs> His mother thought, what in the world is that boy doing? She eased up the hallway and heard him say this, Lord, if you ever want to see your mother again, you better give me that red box. (laughs) 
sometimes we're really not concerned about the label we put on it. We just want something that works. Well, on the day of Pentecost, we see something powerful, something that would forever equip the church with that X factor that would cause all that we believe to work beyond the classroom, off of the chalkboard, and into the lives of real people who by faith would put it in action and see the power of the Holy Spirit begin to work in their life. But you understand the day of Pentecost was really not, it was in many ways the beginning of something, but it was also the climax of something. There was a movement that began earlier, much earlier. As a matter of fact, it could be argued that it began on the day that Adam and Eve fell in the garden when God got prophetic and he came into the garden and he spoke to the serpent and he spoke to the woman and he spoke to the man and he prophesied that there would be a redeemer that would come that would restore everything that had been lost in the fall in that original sin. And how many are glad that that person that would come was none other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of heaven and earth, and the King of the world. But when we're thinking about Pentecost, we have to understand that it's really talking about the story of redemption. And I did write a book about it. It's called Pilgrimage to Pentecost, but it's not really about an esoteric or a Pentecostal experience, though I do explain it and talk about it. As I began to look at the events that led up to the day of Pentecost, I saw a lot of familiarity in my life as a Christian. Things that they went through, Jesus and his disciples, were common to things that I went through. I mean, most of us, if you're ever going to get to that day where you discover your destiny and that day where you experience what God has for you, you're going to go through a few seasons and moments of testing. Can I get an amen? Amen. Perhaps you're going to be called into a garden where you make the right decision, and instead of things getting better, they get worse. Maybe you're called to a moment like Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane when he had to pray that prayer, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And you make that decision, and you know it's right, but it costs you everything. Maybe you're going to be taken into the hall of the religious who should have had a word of encouragement because of what God was doing in your life. But instead of a word of encouragement, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they have a word of accusation. Maybe from there you're drugged to a courtroom of public opinion where truth is misunderstood. And I tell you honestly, I've never seen a generation any more knee in need of the truth, the truth, God's truth, than the generation that we're a part of today. As I began to contemplate all the events that were leading up to it, I realized that I was making a similar journey, that God had a destiny for me. You see, Pentecost is about the destiny of the church. Pentecost is about the birth of the church. Pentecost is about God launching a cosmic rescue mission that was designed to reach all of of mankind, at least whosoever would and be willing to hear the truth and respond to it. That's really what Pentecost was about. But I have to tell you, if you're going to get to your Pentecostal moment, if you're going to get to that moment of discovery where you realize what God has called you to do and what God has called you to be, I wish I could tell you you could get to the day of Pentecost without having to visit Calvary. But Jesus said it this way on the road to Caesarea Philippi in October before he was, uh, he was crucified in April. He said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Can I tell you, I think it was T.D. Jakes that said, and I think it's a great statement, that there'll never be a head fitted for a crown whose hands hasn't been fitted to a cross. 
So there are going to be those moments. But can I tell you in those cross moments, don't panic. <laughs> don't panic because if you'll hold on. You know, the, the, arguably the darkest moment in the redemptive journey was only 52 or so days before the climactic greatest moment of victory that the church has ever known. Sometimes in those moments, those Calvary moments of our life, the devil will try to convince us that that's all God has planned for us. But can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that yes, you have to bear your cross, and yes, you have to have Calvary moments where you see perhaps a dream slip away or you see something like that happen in your life, but that's not all God has planned for you. There is yet a Pentecostal moment for you if you will not quit in those dark moments of your life. And I need a good amen for that because that right there is true, true, true. Amen. And the enemy will try to convince you. So as I begin to write the story and I begin to look at history, I begin to realize that the journey toward the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost was a journey that all of us in our Christian lives must take. And so what I'd like to do for a couple of moments today is just fall into three of those moments, three of those moments. We're going to talk about the cross and we're going to talk about the resurrection, and then we're going to talk about the day of Pentecost. Are you ready? Everybody buckled up, and let's, let's do this thing. Well, the story of redemption begins. Let me just kind of make a, a big directional statement for my message today, kind of a foundational statement for you, and, and I want you to think about it for a moment. The story of redemption begins with sacrifice, but ends with multiplication. You know, that's how all seeds are. You know, when you sow seeds, there is an element and a feeling sometimes of loss. You know, we think about our giving to the church, for example, our tithe maybe being a seed that we sow into the kingdom, and we use that terminology a lot. And I don't know about you, but there's never been a check that I've written to give away that there wasn't that, that first little voice that hopped up on my shoulders and said, wait a minute, why are you sowing that seed? Don't you realize you could have paid your light bill with that? You could have paid your car payment with that. There is that moment where you have and as you're sowing that it feels like sacrifice. But how many are glad that in the kingdom, when a seed is sown in the kingdom in faith, that the devil has no antidote for the harvest that comes when a seed has been sown in faith into the kingdom of God. And it always begins with sacrifice, but ends in multiplication. That's how the kingdom was. And you say, well, what does that have to do with the cross? Jesus called himself a seed that would be sown into the world. And he himself acknowledged that if he did not die, if he was not sown into the world, he would abide and remain alone. But he didn't want to abide and remain alone. He wanted you and he wanted your husband or your wife or your children. He wanted your family to be part of his family. So he endured the cross. The cross was about the sowing of Jesus Christ in the world. Redemption begins with sacrifice but ends with multiplication. It begins in the passion of the Christ. But it ends in the birth and the multiplication and the power of the cross. Wow. So let's talk about these three things. First of all, the cross. Everybody say with me, what just happened? happened? (laughs) Has anybody in the room ever been through a moment in your life and you were with maybe your husband or your wife and you looked over each other and said, what just happened? That's kind of how it was at the cross. You see, redemption 
is partly about the cross and the blood, but it's not totally about the cross. But there were some incredible things that happened there, and I want to draw your attention to them. But we do have to acknowledge that there's more in redemption than just the cross and the blood. Now, that sounds radical. You may say, wait a minute, I thought the redemption was just about the cross, and it was just about the blood. But that's not the case, ladies and gentlemen. God had more planned than just a suffering moment for his son on the cross. You see, for us to make redemption just about the cross and just about the blood of Jesus would be like saying to a pregnant woman that the purpose of the pregnancy was the labor. Are there any moms in the room that would acknowledge with me that you didn't get pregnant just because of that wonderful 12 hours of agony you were going to experience? That wasn't your motivation. As a matter of fact, if you could have deleted that, you would have avoided it. But there was something coming that you knew you had to go through the labor to get what was coming. And that's how redemption is. The cross was the labor. It wasn't just, the Bible says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was set before him? It was what was, it was about that baby that was going to be born 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. Amen. And so what just happened? Well, there were a couple of things that happened that I think change everything in, in the way we think about the cross. First of all, most of us have said this thing. I have most of my adult Christian life. I've said, well, Jesus died on the cross for me. He died on the cross for sinners. And this, all that's true. That's completely true. But can I tell you that it's deeper than that? Let me make a statement to you that I want to, and I made it yesterday to the group, and I want it to sink in on your heart. And let me just say it. Jesus didn't just die for you, Jesus died as you. Just think about that because we often don't characterize it. You see, if Jesus died for me, then that makes him wonderful, but I'm still a wretch. It makes me feel wonderful about him, and sometimes, if I'm honest, it makes me feel worse about myself. But that's not what happened in the mind of God. Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. Jesus didn't just die for the lost, he died as the lost. You see, ladies and gentlemen, grace works because God's judgment and justice was satisfied against sin for every man, every woman, and every boy and girl who ever lived in history or will ever live in the ages future to come. The blood of Jesus is enough for all of us. For all of us. But it sure changes the nuance of that idea when you say, wait a minute, he didn't just die for me, he died as me. That means the sinner that you have been. People say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I get where they're coming from, and that's totally true. But I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. The sinner that I used to be didn't get off scot-free. Grace works because I was executed in my sins in the body of his son on the cross. You say, Brother Brasil, you got Bible for that. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us, for we reckon thus. We have analyzed it and come to this conclusion. For the love of Christ compels us, for we judge thus. If one died for all, then all died. Now, I'm not suggesting or preaching to you a form of universal Christianity that ultimately everyone's going to be saved. What I am preaching to you is they could be. I'm saying it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. 
The, why do we call the gospel good news? Why is the cross and the preaching of the cross good news? The, what Paul called in Romans the message of the cross. Why is that important? The good news of it is you have now died in his body in your sins and you are qualified to be born again of the Spirit of God. It's good news. Somebody said, well, brother, that's cheap grace. Well, see, grace is not cheap. It's free. You see, Jesus didn't just die because of what you had done. He died as you, receiving the wrath of a holy God and the just reward of your sin. I can't explain it. Paul tried to in Romans chapter 6 when he said, For as many as a, of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. I don't believe, and there could, certainly is room for various opinions here, but I don't believe that the that the baptism he's speaking of here is water baptism. I think he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit as by faith when I hear the gospel and it awakens my heart and I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and I put my faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, miraculously and supernaturally the Holy Spirit baptizes me into his death and in my sins I die with him on the cross. In my sins. I can't explain how it works. All I can explain is that God mysteriously placed you and me, all of us, in Christ on the cross, and we were executed. You see, to save any man or woman, Jesus had to become every man and every woman. It's the real miracle of Calvary. I think we don't talk enough about it. We say it when we baptize people, don't we? You are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. It's, it's in our catechisms. It's in what we teach. But sometimes we don't pause and think about it and realize, wait a minute, you don't owe the flesh anything. You may have been a liar, a cheater, a fornicator. You may have, been, you may have a litany of sins that you could ascribe to your name. But can I tell you, the devil will try to keep putting that label on you, but the devil is a liar. Those labels were taken off when you died on the cross with Jesus Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. You see, he died as you so that you could live as him. And I could start at Pentecost and we could just preach that hallelujah in that great, the outpouring, but it would lose its context if we don't understand what led us to that moment where we are qualified to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You are qualified not because you're good. You're qualified because He's good. You're qualified not because of what you can do or what you did, but because of what He can do and what He did. Forgive me for getting excited about it. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not mad at anybody. I just get excited about it. And that's the Arkansas coming out. You're right, bro. You got that right. <laughs> the real miracle of Calvary. It's not just a good and innocent man dying a torturous death that he did not deserve. It's not, that's not what makes the cross unique. Millions have died for other people and suffered incredible deaths. That wasn't what made the cross unique. What made it unique is God made Jesus to become every man and woman who ever lived or will ever live, who ever sinned or will ever sin and fall short of his glory. And they faced the judgment of God in the person of Jesus. 
Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I just mentioned, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live. That passage that I mentioned a moment ago, because some of you are thinking, well, I never quite heard it that way. Well, let's look just for a second a little deeper. That 2 Corinthians chapter 5 passage says, it goes on to say, And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And then the verse that is perhaps one of the most famous verses in all the Bible that we quote all the time, but we just don't tie those few verses together with it that precede it. Where Paul says, therefore, everybody say therefore. Therefore. Remember back in the Bible college days? What's that therefore? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. You see, the old things that have passed away are not what you used to do. It's who you used to be. That paves the way for you to become a brand new creature in Christ Jesus. So to me, that's good news. Anybody in the room that are glad you don't have to be who you used to be in your sins? Anybody want to, is it time for a praise break? Let's just take a moment and thank the Lord. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that I have been completely delivered. Completely delivered. I'm not even the same species I used to be in my sins. Old things have passed away. The emphasis of this conversation about the cross is that I'm in Christ I have been put in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and now listen now I am free to be filled with the Holy Spirit that's why Calvary preceded the day of Pentecost is because the work of redemption through atoning sacrifice had to be completed. And Jesus on that day, he, he hung on the cross, hung there for all of us, and then closed his eyes in death. You see, it wasn't enough for him to just suffer. Let me just lay, add one little layer to this. You see, there's a difference in the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. They do different things. They do different things. The blood of Jesus deals with what you've done. Okay? Pays that price. The death of Jesus deals with who you are. He didn't, it wasn't enough for him just to come and bleed and suffer for you. That would have cleaned the debt, but it wouldn't have changed who you are. It would have paid the debt and the interest to that point. But you would have walked away from that experience still a sinner, still a wretch, without a spiritual regeneration. It was necessary that he suffer and and bleed, but also that he bleed to death. Because when he was about to surrender up the ghost and give up the ghost, he said, it is finished. It was in his death 
that it was finished. So we have a two-dimensional atonement. We have the atonement that deals with the bad stuff I've done, the thoughts that I've had, the things that I shouldn't have done that I did. But then there's something deeper. There's something that changes who I am on the inside. It changes not only what I've done, but who I am. And that old has passed away now. How many look at your neighbor and say, okay, preacher, I get the idea. I'm getting it. I got it. I got it. In his blood, I find forgiveness, but in his death, I find transformation. The first scene that I want to draw your attention to on the journey toward Pentecost and that moment when the church was born is the cross of Jesus and to understand fully what happened there. But then we come to a second scene after Jesus died on the cross. And I believe that we see in the resurrection love at its best. Love at its best. You see, we can look at the cross and say, wow, when I think about the love of God, I think about the suffering Savior and the the blood that he shed on the cross and the death that he died. How many believe that that is love? It is. It's love. In that iconic encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, recorded for us by the Apostle John in John chapter 3 and verse 16, Jesus' own words, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it wasn't enough in the mind of God just to save you from your perishing condition. It was to give you the abundant life that would come by the power of His Holy Spirit. It was two-dimensional. And so at the resurrection, we see something happening. And incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, I know this, this, this message may feel a bit heavy on doctrine, but incidentally, this is why we baptize people. Did you know that? Why does the church... From denomination to different modes and different styles and different ways. But why do we all practice baptism? It's because of what I've been preaching in my opening monologue about our co-crucifixion with Christ and death on the cross. The whole reason we put you in the waters of baptism is because it's representing the burial of Jesus in you. It's, it's what do you do with a dead body, right? Amen. You bury it. So we baptize people in water because we are signifying what? That you died with Jesus on the cross. And now we're putting you in the waters of baptism. And as you go down in the waters of baptism, we often say you are raised in newness of life. And that's the scene that we come to in the resurrection. I'm thankful that redemption didn't just stop at Calvary. Can I get an amen? I'm glad that there was a third day. I'm glad that there was a moment that he died and succumbed, laid his own life down. But then three days later, because there was no sin in him intrinsically, three days later, he came out of the grave victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. Praise God. But he didn't just do it himself, but because you were crucified with him, he brought you in his resurrection out. And that's what we commemorate in the waters of baptism. That you came out of the grave victorious. But can I tell you today, and I don't want you to think bad of me, and I know this is my first time to be here, and we kind of have to measure each other out and get that, but can I just tell you, I'm not probably that sanctified. If I was Jesus when I would have came out of the grave, I probably would have done the resurrection a little different. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if they drug me through the streets and spit on me and called me every horrible name you can imagine and pulled my beard out, 
When I came out of the grave, I would have made a few visits to some folks that had a celestial visit coming. <laughs> I ain't going to lie. I ain't going to lie. Maybe I would have made another midnight visit to, to the, the, the courtroom of, of Pilate and said, uh, I'm back. Or, or maybe I would have made another late afternoon visit in the Hall of Hewn Stones with the Sanhedrin and say, y'all want to see a man fly? What you going to do? No. Why do I see the climax of love at its best in the resurrection? You see, because the story of love is not just told simply by what you endure in hardship. It's also how you handle victory. Yes, Jesus could have appeared in some sort of I'll get you back fashion. But yet he didn't do the resurrection that way. As a matter of fact, he makes his first appearance in an obscure garden outside the city of Jerusalem to an ex-hooker. And ordains her as the first evangelist of the new covenant. That's what a Calvary moment will do in your life. Are y'all in the room with me today? I said, that's what a Calvary moment will do in your life. It will empty you of all that revenge, and I'm going to get even with those who've wronged me. And I'm going to, no, no. When you're on the journey toward Pentecost, all that stuff's got to die at Calvary. And when it dies at Calvary, you don't come into newness of life with, I'm going to get you back or something to prove. No, that's not how it works. The complete story of love is demonstrated when you could retaliate and have your revenge, and no one can stop you. Jesus was glorified. He was, fully, he was fully revealing his divinity in his broken human body that had been glorified. He could have gone anywhere, done anything he wanted to do, and proved them all. But love says, no, that's not the mission. That wasn't why you came. It's one thing to watch Jesus suffer in his passion and say, that's love. But for me, it's how Jesus behaved when he clearly could have done something other that I see love and showcase. Death had been defeated. Jesus is now glorified. No one to fear. No threat. That's the second scene that we see. Let me explain, if I, if I may, and, and I feel like I'm making this a classroom, but let, let me explain, if I may. You see, when Jesus came out of the grave, he had shed all of his blood. The scripture says the life of the flesh is in the blood. So there was a principle of life that changed from Jesus' dying moments to his resurrected reality. What was, what was different? It was the principle of life. For Jesus, the principle of life was no longer the blood. It was the spirit. If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you it's the spirit on this side of the resurrection the principle of life is the spirit now the reality that we struggle with is the fact that in our flesh we still have blood in our flesh so there's that tendency in our flesh to gain mastery over us and to be a boss and anybody in the room that would say i have no lust of the flesh at all in me completely we have a room in the back for all lying people that go and we're going to pray for you and to pray that spirit of lying off you. Because how I many know as long as you're breathing, you have a heartbeat and blood in your veins, 
You are going to be drawn by the blood back to the first Adam, back to that original creation, back to that sinner that you used to be that according to the scripture died with Jesus on the cross. But with Jesus, we see the perfect prototype where blood has been done away with and the principle of life is now the power of the Holy Spirit. The cool thing about that is on the day of Pentecost, we got the initial down payment of what a life like that could be. And though there is a war that sometimes rages in my body because of the blood that's in my body that pulls me back, I am also filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, the principle of life in measure. Someday I will be glorified and I will release and my blood will be of no importance. Instead, it will be the Holy Spirit that takes all the nutrients to my cells and my body will be illuminated and filled completely with the glory of God. But today, there's still a battle to fight. And in the resurrection, this is the story we see. We get, a, we get the beautiful picture of what it's going to be like for all of us when we either are resurrected from the dead or go to meet the Lord in the air, whatever there's going to be, you talk about change, there's going to be a change. And we see that change in the body of Jesus at the resurrection. And now it becomes, according to Paul, the anchor of my hope that is anchored behind the veil. Now I can look into heaven spiritually and say, there's a man already there. There's a lot of angels and spiritual beings, but there's somebody in heaven that has a physical body like me, but not guided by the principle of blood. It's guided and empowered and animated by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He died that my sin may be done away with, removed as far as the east is from the west. But he rose from the dead that I might live in the newness of of life where the principle of my life will no longer be about the blood so here's what happens ladies and gentlemen you say well brother brass so you're saying then that we have both right now right we have both the natural yes and the spirit if you are saved and filled with the holy spirit yes and god has empowered you with a will to decide whether you're going to live in the pattern of the first adam or you're going to live in the likeness of the second and last adam the culture around us, ladies and gentlemen, will try to force the label, some label on you that was akin to the label of Adam's Adamic nature that he fell with in the beginning. Are you all in the room with me? I mean, we're in this age of identity politics, right, where everybody wants to label everybody. And what happens? It creates division. Why? Because it draws us back to that original Adam. But can I tell you that when the church realizes, wait a minute, you can't draw me back into some label of my past? That's that person's dead. No, no, my identity now is not in who I used to be or what you see when you look at me. My identity now is in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm a creation made in the fashion and after the order of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And yes, you may see the struggle of my flesh and blood going on, but don't be deceived and think that that's who I still am because by faith, I am not that person anymore. I am a kin. I'm a son of God. I am the son of his righteousness. Hallelujah. By gift of his grace. Not of works that I have done, but by the grace of God and the precious blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. 
Why did Jesus apply his blood to the mercy seat in heaven? Because it became a forever testimony of the death of the flesh and the fact that the old account was settled long ago. I'm about to preach my own self happy, y'all. Y'all. And then we come to the third scene in this play, this drama. The first scene, we see Calvary. Phew, what just happened? <laughs> well, you died with Jesus on the cross. Second scene, we see love in its mature, complete display. And then the third scene is you are now qualified to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you followed me today as I've meandered through this message, and I thank you for your generous attention. But if you followed me, then you understand that there is no accusation, there is no obstacle, there is nothing that has been done to you or that you have done to someone else that disqualifies you from being filled with the Holy Spirit. After all the years working with the body of Christ and with leaders, I have found perhaps the biggest obstacle to people just opening their heart and receiving the Holy Spirit is a feeling of inadequacy and a feeling of guilt and shame based on past failures or not measuring up or because we realize that we're still fighting a battle because of the blood that's in our veins. We still fight the battle with the flesh. We feel disqualified and we feel unworthy and we feel like we, we have, I'll, I'll get in and get filled with the Holy Spirit after I've straightened this out and straightened that out and I've righted this wrong and I've, and the enemy will try to draw you into a lifestyle or performance to try to earn the favor with God that can only come through gift. I pray that as I've, I've broken this open for you today that you've seen and you will agree and affirm in your heart there is nothing yet that you must do to be qualified to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that, I don't know about you, but that's kind of liberating to me. That makes me want to say, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Take that, devil. (laughs) Take that. You want to mess with my head? Take that. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? Stand with me, would you? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Well, Peter, in the original passage that I shared, let me revisit it with you just for a second in the book of Acts. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter is interpreting what's happened for the bystanders and those that are there. We know that in just a few minutes of Peter preaching, 3,000 people are going to come to faith in Christ and be baptized on that day and added to the church. What did Peter, how did Peter interpret the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Well, he did it in the context of Joel. He said, this is that. But if you look at Joel, nothing going on there really was exactly what Joel said would happen. But in the mind of Peter, Peter said, this is the equivalent of what Joel said would happen in the last days. On the day of Pentecost, we ushered in the last days. What will that be? 2,000 years? 3,000 years? 10,000 years? I don't know. But the last days began, according to the apostle Peter. 
who took the prophecy of Joel and interpreted it and said, this is the beginning. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been longing for. Then he says in verse 22, men of Israel, chapter 2, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, In other words, he didn't preach the power of Pentecost on Pentecost. The Pentecost message wasn't about the power of Pentecost. The Pentecost message was what I've just preached to you. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, you know, you saw the miracles he worked. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was impossible that he should be held by it. And then he begins to offer the evidence, the the prophetic evidence of the Old Testament to prove the message that he preached. Ladies and gentlemen, the Pentecost message, and this is Pentecost Sunday, the Pentecost message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for you. He died as you. He came out of the grave. By faith, you can be with him when he comes out of the grave. And now you are qualified like those first believers were to receive the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Hallelujah. 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 Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Wow, there's the key. There's the key. Did you know the day of Pentecost was the proof to the world that Jesus was alive? But he didn't just survive, he died. But three days later, he rose again. All of heaven had waited for that moment. Angels looking into the mystery of redemption with wonder. But when Jesus applied his blood to the mercy seat, and sat down on the throne of God as a covenant man, as a representative of every man and woman who would ever put their faith and confidence in him. When he did that, can I tell you a party broke out in heaven? I said, can I tell you a party broke out in heaven? And the righteous dead that had been held in bondage that came out with him when he came out of the grave and returned back. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the harps and the timbrels began to, to begin to break forth. Angels begin to bow and worship. Heaven's glory began to erupt in, in lightnings and thunderings and power on the day of Pentecost. All we see in the outer court of the temple is the overflow of a heavenly party, a Holy Ghost party that won't stop. How many like a Holy Ghost party? Because the Holy Ghost party won't stop. When the Spirit was poured out, the apostles considered it the living witness that the work was finished and that Jesus was Lord of all. And can I tell you today, ladies and gentlemen, that when the move of the Spirit happens among the body of Christ or in the world in general, it reminds the devil that Jesus is still Lord of all. That he hasn't stopped ruling and reigning from heaven. Every time you feel the quickening, like we did in worship, 
and the tears begin to come, it's reminding me that he's still there. That there's still hope. There's still power. Don't watch too much news and let them convince you that this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe it is, but the church ain't. I said the church ain't. Forgive my bad English. I said the church ain't. He died for us. He rose for us. And he's reigning for us. And he's going to use us in this day to declare the power of his resurrection to a lost and dying world. And it's about whether we will simply with our will say, I'm going after the last Adam and turning my back on the first Adam. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if in, in America today we refused to be labeled as liberal or conservative or white or black or Asian or Indian? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we said, my pedigree is in heaven. I am born after my father of God. <laughs> from every nation and every tongue and every tribe. And I tell leaders all the time, if you're not careful, the current situations will pull you to the left or pull you to the right. I'm saying go vertical on that. Let's go vertical. Let's go to Jesus. And those things that would divide us, if we go to Jesus, will draw us together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Thank you for your attention today. If you're here and on this Pentecost Sunday, you'd say, Brother Brassfield, I believe what you've preached. And if I'm honest, the power of the Holy Spirit is not living in me. Maybe you've never received the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you did a long time ago, but it's grown cold in your heart by the cares of life. But as I've shared this message that's been a bit more theological perhaps than most I would normally preach but I've tried to build the case for you today that you are free to be filled with the Holy Spirit and if that's you in the room would you just slip your hand up on this Pentecost Sunday I want to be full of the Holy Spirit I want to be full of the Holy Spirit I want to remain full I want to be illuminated by His power and by His grace. I'm going to raise both my hands. You see, because I figured this out, then worse than I need more money in the bank or another preaching opportunity or another, worse than I need anything in my life, I need the power of the Holy Spirit living and abiding. I want to be possessed by His Spirit. People talk about demon possession. I want to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. I'm saying I'm opening all the doors and I'm saying all the windows and saying fill me come on in come on in come on in let me pray this prayer for you right now Lord do you see the hands and the hearts of everyone in this room Holy Spirit would you just flow in would you just let it be like a moment of Pentecost where you flow in like a rushing mighty wind and heal every broken place and every wounded spot Heal every misunderstanding and every disappointment and every moment of confusion and suffering. Would you just flow in and let us see the glory of a resurrected Lord? Let us see the majesty and the splendor. Let us put our eyes on Jesus and get them off the world 
Lord, with everyone whose heart and hands were raised toward you, would you just do that? Lord, let forgiveness rise in this building. Let peace be the portion of this congregation. The peace of Jesus Christ. I'm thinking about that garden moment where you called to Mary and once she heard your voice, she knew you. She fell at your feet. Maybe, Lord, she was there in honesty more out of loyalty than faith. Maybe she was there because she remembered what life was like before you. And she couldn't bear the thought of it. Lord, whatever would be the circumstance of anyone in this room, in this moment, I pray they'd put their trust in you. And like the gentle dove that you are, you would just swoop in and make it all better. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. If you receive the word of the Lord today, would you just give the Lord a big hand clap of praise today? God bless you. Thank you. come down to this altar we are going to worship and i want to i just want you to receive what god has for you i think we need to just stay where we're at right here for a moment and let god minister to some folks so if that was you and you want to come and you want to you want god to minister to you and touch you my wife's going to sing and i want you to come go ahead go ahead come on come on down to the altar if that was you you want to be filled with god's spirit come on Come on, don't hesitate. You know, in, in a lot of the churches that I, I, not, I didn't even see it so much, I heard about them, but it was so much about you being right to get the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people would come and they would do what we call tearing in the altar, and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come, and they, they, they would hear things like, well, maybe you just need to get some things right in your life. I think that Dr. Brasfield has cleared that up today. It is not about your righteousness. It is about Jesus' righteousness and what he has done. And the Bible says that, that, a, that a parent, if their child asked them for bread, the parent would not give them a stone. How much more will your father give you the gift of the Holy Spirit? All it takes is belief that Jesus is Lord and that he has died in your place and he is resurrected, and that you are in him. That's the simple belief that it takes. And if, that, if you, you believe that in your heart, you are, as Dr. Grassfield said, you are qualified to be a recipient of God's spirit. So I want my wife to sing, and I would just want, if you want to sense God's presence coming in to fill you today in a new way, yeah, I remember David Cook being here several months back. He talked about how we leak. We've got to constantly be refilled with the Holy Spirit. And, and the, the, the verb tenses, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but the, the way that it's, that it's worded there when it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit says, be being filled 
with the Holy Spirit. It's a continual thing. I want God to continually pour his spirit into this leaky vessel. Amen. So if you want the Holy Spirit, come and receive today. Freely receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus. 